0: This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton,
1: originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host,
0: Laura Zarro. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarro, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, for today's show about the fiercest women in rock and roll, what made them such iconic successes, and what we can all learn from them. Our phones are open at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. And we'd love to hear from you. Come join the conversation and tell us, who are your rock and roll heroines? Who is it that you have on a first-name basis, like Bonnie or Melissa Or Tony, who is it that, you know, sang to your soul and inspired you? We'd love to hear your stories. Give us a ring at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. Now, before I introduce today's guest, I have this week's public service announcement. Because Election Day is upon us, and it's time to get out the vote. It's really exciting to see that we have more women candidates than ever before in American history, which is worthy of celebration in its own right. As we've learned, you can't be what you can't see. And if nothing else, these brave women are giving the generation that follows a new set of role models and hopefully, and quite importantly, creating a pipeline of women in politics for many years to come. Whether you vote by issue, by party, or the sum of an individual's various attributes, please vote get out and vote. And know that there are solid resources out there to help you in the process. You can go to the National Organization for Women, now.org, rockthevote.org, and especially lwv.org. That's the League of Women Voters, which happens to be the nation's largest and most reliable source of nonpartisan election support. So get your information, find out where your polling place is, know what time it opens, know what, to- what kind of ID you need. There are numbers online if you have problems getting through to the polls. But no matter Matter what you do go vote bring your friends and if you have employees let them be late for work just make sure they go vote because you know what we need new role models we need new leaders and we need powerful women up there advocating for the rest of us in the workplace anyway speaking of powerful women role models today's show is all about them and includes my very special guest Meredith Oaks who is the author of the fantastic new book rock and roll woman the 50 fiercest women in rock and roll For those of you who don't know her, she's been a guest on our show a few times before, I'm proud to say. Meredith is an award-winning broadcast journalist, author, musician, and photographer, food writer, cultural translator, great friend, all kinds of amazing things. But she's also very particularly a longtime contributor to NPR, and her works appeared in numerous publications, including Rolling Stone, Entertainment Weekly, and Salon.com. She was the first female editor at Guitar World magazine and the host of a daily talk show on SiriusXM for more than a dozen years. She's one of the greatest cultural translators I know. And seriously, I'm thrilled to have her here on Women at Works. Meredith, welcome. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here (laughs) in person in Philadelphia. I love it. I know. You're getting the whole Philly vibe. It's a good thing.
1: It is. It's a great thing.
0: So I told you, I sat down with your book. The book is beautiful. Um, And I. It was this amazing journey through the lives and work and influences of these 50 extraordinary women. What made you choose these women to write about?
1: That was the most difficult part. I knew I wanted to start with Sister Rosetta Tharp because Foundation of Rock and Roll, very undervalued, not very well rewarded, although she was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this year by Brittany Howard, who ends the book from the Alabama Shakes, uh, who's clearly influenced by her and and so many other uh, fierce women. Um, And men, too. But I wanted to start and end with those two. And the rest, uh, the editors, my editors at Sterling, who are amazing, and I worked on this arc. And it had to be women who uh, really had a huge impact on rock and roll, most of their career spent in rock and roll, and who have endured and had an impact culturally, too. There are a lot of success stories in here, all, even though there's
0: also stories of challenges and failures and complicated lives, like the rest of us. <laughs> exactly, you actually <laughs> made them very human for us. But talk to me about what, where you see their successes.
1: Oh, wow. Well, I mean, all of them had to fight their way into this music that was very masculine. It had this very masculine energy. And even though Elvis Presley and Johnny Cash and Jerry Lee Lewis, they were all in love with Sister Rosetta Tharp, um, but they were the ones who were having the success. And it went on that way for decades. And even when the girl groups uh, started to proliferate in the 60s and influenced all those British invasion bands, they came over and just wiped them off the charts. So each of these women throughout the decades had to fight their way into rock and roll, even as recently as the early aughts, when Karen O oh of the Yeah Yeah finds herself like the only major female rock star on the scene. Uh, again, very dominated by men, and so I feel like a lot of them had to fight their way in, and in that way, they were successful. So we
0: talk here on Women at Work about a lot of the barriers that women face at entering the workplace, and that there's a pipeline to success. You know, it's why we talk about join, stay, succeed, and lead. How do you build the skills that you need? How do you build the networks that you need to, to get in? Um, how do you know how to navigate that landscape so you can at least get through the door? And then once you're there,
1: how do you stay? And it sounds like these women had to learn a lot of the same things. They they had to learn, and in many cases, they didn't have role models to do so. Or they had role models, but the, the doors were just not opening. Um, or they were just, once they were in, they were told they couldn't do certain things. For example, Pat Benatar who she was the second person to be played on MTV. But no one ever talks about her. They'll talk about Video Killed the Radio Star, which was the first video. Pat Benatar was the second video. Um, so Video Killed the Radio Star was her warm-up band. Basic, that's right, the Buggles. Where are they now? <laughs> Pat Benatar is still touring and making music. Um, great. I love the Buggles, though. No no offense. Um, but even her record label and her the promoters who worked with her said, you will never sell out an arena because women don't sell out arenas. P.S., she ends her first tour at Madison Square Garden, hometown, sold-out crowd. She did it, even though they told her she couldn't. So how much of that was
0: that there was no precedent, and how much of that is that they didn't know how to market women?
1: I think all along, and you'll see this throughout the book, or you read it throughout the book, that they did not know how to market women. You have great bands, the first three rock and roll bands, all women, Fanny, uh, Goldie and the Gingerbreads, uh, and uh, The Pleasure Seekers with Susie Quattro and her sisters. And they were in like the early, mid-60s, mid to late 60s. They didn't know how to market them. You just, they didn't know what to do with them. So that's that was always a problem. How much of it was that there was this kind of legacy? I still have, there's a, uh, a-
0: musician that I'm good friends with, and he has a bunch of bands out there, and he refers to the band as the, the cats and the kitten, and looks at the vocalist as the woman like she's the flower in front of the band. And I feel like some of that came from big band music, and a way that women were the ornament up front, not the thing that was driving the band, where the band leader was always a man. How Was that part of the problem, or was it we were just not used to seeing, we didn't know how to yet accept women in that strong front man role?
1: I think that that's a huge part of it, and that's why one of my rock heroes has always been Chrissy Hind of The Pretenders, because she was the leader of that band, she was the visionary, she had this very unusual time signature, and the men had to catch up with her. They had to play on her rhythm, not, uh, you know, standard rhythm. She wore uh, jackets and ruffled uh, collars, she buttoned up to, like, you didn't see an inch of flesh on her, and she was like, this is how I'm doing this. And, and she know. was
0: totally sexy without making herself a sex object. Exactly. And there was a
1: certain kind of power that she had because of that. I think so. I mean, she to, she's. I think she just turned 70 and she's still touring. That's incredible. Yeah, she toured like most of this year. It brings up for
0: something for me that um, I feel like it's a, a term that a lot of people are using now. How do you show up? Who do you show up as? What do you bring to the table? But it also means how do you present? What did you see in behind how the, because these women were making very calculated choices about how they showed up. Depending on who they wanted to be, how they wanted to be perceived, and I also think how they wanted to feel.
1: Right. Well, you see, I mean, it starts uh, very early on in the book with Wanda Jackson, who, when she got into country music, um, she found a, a landscape where women were covered. They were, like, wearing long, fringe suede skirts, and they, they called them cowboy suits. Again, totally covered. She loved Ava Gardner and Marilyn Monroe. She was a teenager. So she was like, no, I'm wearing spangly dresses, and her and her mother would sew up these beautiful dresses, like, you know, cocktail dress. And, and she was like, no, this is how I'm presenting myself. And she really changed the way women looked in country music.
0: And so that she got a certain kind of sophisticated power by taking on that glamour.
1: Yes, until she shows up at the Grand Ole Opry in a bespoke dress made specially for that night. And they say, nope, you can't have bare shoulders at the Opry, Miss. You have to cover up. So she, she performed in a jacket and she didn't go back for almost 60 years. Six zero. 60. 60, 60, yeah. Almost six decades. What brought her back? Jack White of the White Stripes. You're kidding me. <laughs> no, she made a great record with Jack White. Jack White is amazing visionary guitar player. Worked with Loretta Lynn and made a Grammy winning album with her. Made an album with Wanda Jackson. Is working right now on new music with Wanda Jackson, who is 81 and still rocking. And she, uh, uh, just a few years ago, maybe six or seven years ago, she's at the Aubrey with Jack White. And did she have to cover her shoulders? Well, she—it's funny. She said, "You know, now nobody wants to see my shoulders now. (laughs) Not even me." So she, but she wore her fringes that sway when she dances. And and
0: for people who aren't familiar with her and Sister Rosetta Tharpe, so I feel like there's one of the things you did in the book that's fantastic. Is there are little notes at the bottom of each artist section that talks about who they influenced and who their influences were,
1: just briefly. What's their legacy? Who did each of these artists influence? Oh, wow. Well, I mean, Sister Rosetta Thar absolutely laid the foundation for rock and roll. I mean, she did the, the duck walk before Chuck Berry. She did the windmill arm before Pete Townsend. So even the guy rockers she influenced um uh, Wanda Jackson too. I mean d- rockabilly wasn't even a thing and she was she dated Elvis Presley for a year. She still has his <laughs> ring to this day. Um but it was all very innocent cuz her dad was on tour with them so you know he was like always looking over their shoulder. Uh but she in you can hear her voice, that grit in her voice. Elvis said, "You know, you have something special. You don't have to just sing country. You could do this new Rock and roll thing. I don't even think there. It was called. I mean, it was kind of called rock and roll, but maybe white people didn't know what to call it at the <laughs> right. time. Um, but sh- so you can hear her voice in the the voice of many singers through the decades. That grit, that like tough right. Sound. I think
0: you described it as the girl growl. The girl growl, exactly. Yeah, th- it's one of the things, Meredith. I got to tell you that is all through this book is the language that you give to things that. Um, We witness every day, but I don't think we pay attention to. And when I went and started listening to all the music that you refer to, part of what was so much fun was that you helped me hear... The bottom. You helped me hear the bass line. You helped me hear the time signature. Things that I didn't even have a vocabulary for, but because you described it, I was able to take in the music differently, never mind the stories and the influences. That makes me feel very happy because I'm a musician,
1: (laughs) and I was a musician before I was a writer, and so it it informs everything.
0: It really came out, but the thing that was... Um, really one of the biggest gifts that's in each of these things is the way that you give us context for the way that they made art and what was going on in their lives. And one of the early um, people that you honor in the book is Ronnie Spector.
1: Who I've interviewed so many times and I love her. She, what makes you love her so much? Oh, she is the sweetest. She's just the most wonderful woman. Like all of her success, she deserves every bit of it. And she's got that voice that only I can think of maybe three people who have this teardrop thing in their voice. Teardrop in your voice is what they call mm-hmm. it Patsy Klein, Linda Ronstadt, Ronnie Spector. Um, and she got out of a terrible situation. You know, she was hot, flying high uh, with the Ronettes as a very influential girl group. And then she marries Phil Spector and changes pop music forever. And then he locks her away in a tower. It was, it was like a Grimm's fairy tale. It was horrific. <laughs> um, and then finally, she got out of that. And um, all the the uh, rock and rollers who she had befriended and networked with over the years that she had been touring, they came to her side. And they were like, you know, they helped her launch part two of her career. Because actually, there's an important thing to note
0: when, because um, this happened to a number of different artists where um, their partnerships are really interesting. There are a lot of them that you write about who have totally normal, successful lives and partnerships. They have long-term partners, husbands or wives. They have children. Um, we'll talk about how they emerge as business people and producers. But for some of them where the duo had the woman as the performer and the man was the producer, there are a few of these stories where these men were abusive and they con- they had complete control over the women because
1: they held the financial Well, and I I mean Tina Turner. Everybody's seen the movie and knows the story (laughs) of Ike and Tina. Um, But also, that's what women were told in the '60s: you get married and you be a good wife, and that's what you do. So it wasn't even in in their consciousness to to think I need to get out of this thing. Where did you
0: see a moment like where somebody actually was aware going into their career that they should keep control of
1: it? Yeah, you see a lot of those moments, and um, especially what comes to mind is Fleetwood Mac, Stevie Nicks and uh, Christine McVie, right? They're very, they're hyper aware of the fact that many women at this time are wives, they're groupies, but they're not musicians. And these are two brilliant musicians and they, they kind of make a pact And they say, we are going to navigate this world together, and we're going to be treated like royalty, and we're going to dress up and be rock stars, and we're going to have control of our lives. And they end up writing most of the songs, most of the hits. By the way, I'm
0: navigating this world today with the amazing Meredith Oak. You're listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. You know me. I'm Laura Sarrow. I'm your host. And we're talking about Meredith's new book, Rock and Roll Women. The 50 Fiercest Women Rockers. If you have a question about something we're discussing, give us a call. We would love to have you join in the conversation. That's 844-942-7866. So when you talk about Fleetwood Mac and um, Stevie Nicks and Christine McVie, it's, I, part of what I think is so powerful there is that they, it's like they were business partners. And there was a way that they created a unit. All the The rest of the band kind of orbited around them. But that unit that pairing of theirs gave them musical strength, financial strength. Tell me how they
1: operated. Well, they didn't operate like Mick Fleetwood for example, who <laughs> went broke because of his habits and other things or Lindsey Buckingham who just got kicked out of the band. <laughs> I mean, so they they just they kept it together and you see especially with Stevie Nicks, she was very she had a lot of women friends in music. Um, I mean, she made records with all kinds of musicians, but she, you see this like this group of women around her. Linda Ronstadt, too. A lot of powerful women worked with women uh, and supported other women. So I think that's a huge part of their calculus.
0: Um, Stevie Nicks, one of, the, one of the many reasons why she's so iconic is also how she showed up, the image that she presented, this kind of Wiccan goddess, magical creature. Um, That, you know, with her flowing dresses and her wild hair. twirling. Yes. But there was something else about that that was powerful other than how it made us all feel
1: magical. Right. She discovered and she grew up on the West Coast and uh, observed Janis Joplin. I think her early bands opened for Janis Joplin. And she watched this woman. And Janis Joplin, too, had this costume. When she put on the costume, she was, like, unassailable. Her big sunglasses, her feathers. Like, you know, she was a woman who was very hurt. I mean, a person. I mean, she grew up being sort of abused by people around where she grew up in Texas, Port Arthur. She was very unconventional. Um, and Stevie Nicks watched her and realized that a cape can also be a shield. And so when my, like, rock costume is on, you can't touch me. You can't bother me. You can say what you want, but it's going to bounce right off this magical cape. Or, you know, it's like a it's a shield, really. It's a power suit. Yeah. Who needs exactly. the shoulder
0: pads of the <laughs> 80s?
1: These were their power I don't. <laughs> suits.
0: I know. Me either. But it's I find it fascinating to see that these women who... You know, to those of us, especially, we were kids as they were emerging as major stars. And they seemed, it seemed effortless. And it it seemed like they were just hatched that cool, that in control. But to realize that that was its own work.
1: Correct. And I I think it's uh, when you look at uh, Stevie Nicks being influenced by Janis Joplin and Janis Joplin being influenced by Odetta, you know, hearing and and not even seeing because she she just heard the power of that voice and realized that there's something in there, that blues, that's the music. That's my music. That's the thing that makes me powerful.
0: So I want to come back to like you were talking about Ronnie Spector and that there and you were talking about how um, after she got out from her husband. Um, there was a community there ready to partner with her. And that says a lot about both her musicianship and the relationships she had with these other musicians, most of
1: whom in this case were male. How did that network develop? Um, well, I mean, I think everybody loved Ronnie Spector. You can't not love her. You just fall in love with her when you hear her voice. It's so aching. It's so beautiful. And and she's even the words she was saying, be my baby, Women didn't say that to men back then. That it's just true. didn't that happen. was a kind of radical act. It was so. I think people were were naturally drawn to her. She's she is just a good person. When you see her, you know she just has this thing about her, this charisma. Um, and I think uh, when when she separated from Phil, she spent a few years kind of drinking and and thinking nobody cares about me and I'm done. Um, but then uh, Billy Joel writes her a song, and she records it with the E Street Band, Bruce Springsteen's band, and Eddie Money puts her back on the charts, and she, uh, she has this whole other life. that, And she's still touring, too. She still plays gigs. How much of it, because there is the testimony
0: to who are you and how do you interact with people, but also her musicianship and her talent.
1: Yeah, that voice, my God. I mean, that it's very, very rare. That teardrop is very rare.
0: And that she found a way to sustain it and propel it and find new ways to apply it creatively.
1: It's true. And even from the time she was a little girl, and uh, you'll appreciate this as someone who grew up around New York and in its grand buildings, she would sing a note when she was like eight years old and hear her voice reverberate throughout the, the tall, um, arched, uh, like, hallways of these old New York apartments. She grew up in Spanish Harlem. So even from the time she's little, she realizes that there's power in this. I have some power. And that, I think that's a, a huge part of who she became. So talk to me about um, the Go-Go's a little bit.
0: Because I think they were having an entirely different professional experience.
1: Right. Well, they came out of punk rock. So they came out of the L.A. punk scene, Los Angeles punk scene. Um, Belinda Carlisle was a cheerleader. I mean, clearly you see her. She's beautiful. She's, you know, you think this is a girl with no problems. I mean, (laughs) but she, you know, she loved punk and she they uh, they got together and they um, they were very driven, very goal oriented. Once they got together, they asked the original bass player to leave and they got a new bass player. They really were going to let nothing stop them. Their manager was a woman. They had female roadies. They had a woman lawyer um and so they uh they really worked hard they went over to england they got gobbed on and they got (laughs) you know beer thrown at them and but they kept working and finally uh miles copeland of irs records there are a few like male heroes throughout the book yeah and he Uh, sounds like he was one of them he was one of them he always championed women artists uh chris blackwell of island records he felt that the future of rock was female he's another one um, and so the Go-Go's finally have their huge hit. And I love the, uh, the cover of Beauty and the Beat, because all of them are wearing white towels and a white face mask. So you don't really know who's who. Everyone looks the same. And it's like, we're all equal. That's not exactly how it worked out, but that's the way it was presented. <laughs> and I think that's cool.
0: Right. And, and so that you see this strength in this commun- this group of women, this team. Right. that's operating as a team and even hired women lawyers and managers right, to support them as a team.
1: Right, and that was conscious. And uh, And then, of course, the press says, well, the singer is clearly the star, and then the guitar player says, well, you're not doing enough of my songs. I want to go record with The Sparks, which she did and had a hit. <laughs> um, and then it falls apart, sadly. Um, but then they got back together. They did a reunion tour. They're on Broadway now, so it, it all works out. Okay, so that to me, they. I want to talk more about some of these, like, teams of
0: women and communities of women but before we do i want to stay at kind of the beginning of this arc because i'm seeing two things that for me are really juxtaposed as different experiences different points in history and kind of lessons for us about agency um sippy wallace bonnie Raitt, the rhythm and blues foundation you know it wasn't just gender but it was also racial that there was a real dividing line between who got royalties, who got paid. Talk
1: to me about some of that, and especially how it affected early women artists. Well, I mean, Big Mama Thornton is a great example. She, um, she meets Lieber and Stoller, two of the greatest songwriters ever. Uh, they're 19 years old. She's like 26. But to, to them, she seems ancient, ancient <laughs> wisdom in this terrifying woman who towered over them. And so they go home and they write Hound Dog for her. And she records it, and it's like a great version. It's like the best version ever. Um, it really is amazing. It When you hear it, after hearing Elvis's for so long, you're like, oh my God, where has this been all my life? Uh, and Big Mama Thornton, not yet in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, calling you out. She needs to be. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, she made like $500 for recording that. You're kidding me. And that's it. And everyone she worked with, Lieber and Stoller and Elvis and everyone else, they're all in the Rock Hall. They all, you know, did not well. Not to mention
0: that when other people, not you... Talk about the history of rock and roll—they start with Hound Dog,
1: correct? So, uh, although they—and should... not hers, right? well that needs that's another reason why the book is here so um but that's that's an example of a lot of artists who you know royalties were were not given and they were just not treated well Aretha Franklin on the other hand very smart very sharp she learned fast um and it's interesting to me because uh gospel and the gospel world they always had more agency over their their money like they her her, her father C L Franklin was a very famous um the uh, reverend, he made like 70 records or something like that of his sermons. He dressed sharp. Uh, he had a mansion. They knew how to hang on to their money and spend it appropriately. Was that
0: because within the black community, they were professionals? They were sophisticated? They, um, because of their training in order to wind up in churches, were educated? Or was there something else about what they were doing in a world that was set up to deny them opportunity
1: well they were giving hope to African Americans throughout the country the Great Migration was happening and uh, and people were searching for opportunity and to listen to a preacher tell you uh, and empower you tell you things that empowered you I mean they had they held tremendous sway over communities and they gave people hope and they helped people I mean there was like this network of uh, if you were gonna travel Uh, And you were black, you couldn't get a hotel room in certain cities. So through the Baptist church, which Aretha grew up in, you could find out, where can I stay? Where can I eat?
0: Yeah. It, it, as you wrote about that and how also some of the musicians got smart enough that they knew that they were going into environments where the musicians wouldn't be able to find places
1: to eat or sleep and like, that they had to figure out how to bring out food and put beds in, tr- in buses. Right, like Rosetta Tharp had a bus custom made for her and her band and there they were beds in there and were, everything she needed was in there. And then when she toured with Elvis's band, the Jordanaires, who were white, they could go into the restaurant they would bring food out to the bus so she could eat. Because it, it, one
0: of the things that I'm so impressed by and awestruck by was the, were all the different layers where there was so much power there, that there was clearly passion. There was clearly a voice and a message to be carried out, both through gospel music and in the R&B that she wound up doing. But there was this agency and there's this sophistication about how to protect herself and how to advocate for herself in a way
1: that defied social constructs at the time. Right. I mean, you mean for Rosetta? Rosetta therapy? you mean? No, or, I'm talking Aretha. about Aretha. Aretha, too. Aretha wised up very quickly. And she, she, I didn't put it in the book, but she said something very funny. It was like, well, once you, you watch someone pay their taxes with your money, you wise up fast. And so Aretha was famous for having these huge handbags with her. If you look at her, she's always got the bag on stage. That bag is filled with cash. I mean, like $25,000. Like, there's, she would get paid in cash up front or she didn't go on. Only Chuck Berry did that. <laughs> But she wasn't messing around. No, she wanted it
0: right in front of her. She otherwise she wouldn't say. So it wasn't like when we think of business skills now as these sophisticated things that get cultivated in business skill in business school. It was more street smarts. It was like you had to learn this in order to survive. Right.
1: And now contemporary artists, it's a very different landscape. I mean, record labels don't have that much power now. Um, Music's more democratized. You can get on the internet and release an album, and it can be a hit. So things are different. But yeah, it took. It took some artists a while, some never got it. Uh, and some had it like from almost the beginning, like Aretha.
0: <laughs> so we need to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to talk about more of that do-it-yourself power, how that made itself revealed in punk, um, and a whole bunch of other things. So stay with us. I'm going to continue my discussion with Meredith Oaks. I'm Laura Zarrow. You're listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. And if you want to give us a call, our phones are open at one wharton 844 And give us a call. We'd love to know. what success to you?
1: You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio. Here again is Laura Zarrow.
0: Welcome back to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. And today's guest is the amazing Meredith Oaks, author of Rock and Roll Woman, The 50 Fiercest Female Rockers. Meredith, before the break, we were talking about these things that we actually talk about on Women at Work all the time, but that we don't usually talk about in terms of rock and roll. Things like networking skills, leadership, financial management. And one of the things I want to talk about is building your team, especially in the startup climate. We talk about it all the time of what's going on in Silicon Valley, but Part of what your book got me to realize that I never would have known was that there was a serious kind of start-up, do-it-yourself, team-building culture in punk.
1: Correct. And I was a punk rocker from way back. <laughs> and then in the transition from the 80s to the 90s, punk started to become very nihilistic and misogynistic, and it really squeezed out the women. There was no place for women in punk. And so then you see the emergence of Riot Girl, um, Bikini Kill, uh Bratmobile, Um, A a number of bands and uh, really concentrated in a couple of places, Um, but Kathleen Hanna, who was the singer of Bikini Kill, sort of emerges as the leader, the lightning rod, the instigator, Um, and she, uh, she really was radical because she got on stage and she said, girls to the front. She said, all the girls come to the front of the stage, guys, be cool for once, get to the back. Um, and and did they listen? They did, which yeah. also meant that she had a kind of presence. She owned the room. She really did, and um, I mean, it was un- unprecedented, really. And I remember I would go out and to a punk show and slam dance, and it was all very innocent, and we were just having fun and bumping into each other. And then that became moshing, and it became violent. And mm-hmm. I thought, there's no place in, the, in here for me. And these women, they. They felt the same way, but they did something about it. They made these bands. They made these zines. I mean, this was really before the Internet. They would cut up letters and paste them together. And there's a Riot Girl archive now at New York University. You can go and you can look at the letters and look at the posters and all the, thing, the notes to each other.
0: What were they? Um, and it's interesting because you write in the book that they were they were poets, they were creating fiction, they were creating reading experiences, they were creating music. Um, what was it that brought them together, and how did they organize themselves in order to be creatively productive?
1: Well, it's uh, like many of us, uh, you find your tribe in college. So there was Evergreen, State University <laughs> in Oregon, They all, a lot of them met there. Um, and then you have Toby Vale, who, who was the drummer of uh, Bikini Kill, who was friends with Kurt Cobain, kind of Dated for a while, but mostly friends. Wrote a few songs. Was offered to join Nirvana, but didn't want to. She was busy making a zine about feminism and all these other, uh, these other things. And um, and then Kathleen Hannah comes along and scrawls "Kurt smells like Teen Spirit" on the wall of his room, where you know, whatever wherever he was living, and like gives them the name of their anthem, the anthem of the '90s. So, but they were still they were getting together. They were um, they were playing music. They were writing music. They were speaking about. Uh, the things that had happened to them, like as as women, assault or abuse as a child or things, you know, and they would make that part of the show. A lot of it was spoken word, some was music. Um, but yeah, it was like a venting of, we have a lot to say and you're going to listen now. <laughs> <laughs> and also you're going to listen in various forms of media. Correct. Which I think was really interesting.
0: Because that, you know, when we were talking in the first half, just briefly, you know, how many of these women did you listen to alone in your room you know at the most like painful times of your life the most joyous times of your life like they sang it for us they sang it to us
1: right yeah not everybody has to be a musician or or know how to sing or play because people are are writing your story as you're living it
0: and that so many of these artists had something to say sometimes it was personal sometimes it was political and a lot of the time it was both
1: yeah, exactly, especially Riot Girl. And you know, they were especially Kathleen Hannah, and that's why I focused on her in the book because i I wanted to write even more about all the women involved in Riot Girl. Um, but she was really slammed from all sides. She would sometimes go on stage in a bra. And write uh, slut or bitch across her stomach and so and or she'd wear her hair in a ponytail or she would talk like a valley girl so feminists criticized her uh, punk rock boys criticized like, everyone was criticizing her and then you had the media trying to cover this burgeoning scene and calling them angry women in rock I mean I was writing about music then I was asked to write the same angry quote-unquote angry women in rock were article. they writing
0: about the other
1: musicians as angry men in rock no and that exactly no so they weren't expressing any more rage than the guys who were beating the crap out of each other in the mosh pit. <laughs> right. Um but it was interesting. And so the the uh the movement becomes sort of diminished. It falls apart and but out of it you get Slater Kinney uh and uh um they become sort of the rock stars toward the end of the '90s.
0: Okay, so tell us about Slater, Kenny, how they formed, and the kind of work that they do, and and why, in many ways, they're like the 2.0 version
1: of Riot Girl, like a en- enabled, I think, by the era in which they were working. Well, you have Carrie Brownstein, who everybody knows from Portlandia and was on uh, All Songs Considered on NPR. I even did a few with her. She's amazing, um, and uh, and Corin Tucker and um, and Janet Weiss, the three, the trio. And um, they all they were all in bands during Riot Girl. They were in early Riot Girl bands. So they meet, and um, they uh, Corin and Carrie date for a short time, and then they have a band together, and they make all these records. And all of a sudden, Grill Marcus is calling them the greatest band in America, and all these other things. So they're the ones who uh, somehow they they tightened it up, and they uh, they toured a lot, and they became the new you know Riot Girl part two. But at the time. Uh, it was also sort of awful for women in rock. I mean, you had Lilith Tour, which was nice, and then you had, (laughs) you know, and and then
0: you had- But still, Lilith Tour is, it's that thing about making a women's network.
1: True, Um, and that's
0: important. It is really important. Like, we've talked about it in terms of business, that in environments where women are underrepresented, you need to find each other and derive strength from each other. And women's networks continually do that throughout history. The women's circle is like a center of a community and a place of learning. But that especially when you need strength from other women and you step out of your primary environment, you find this community. And what can grow from it's tremendous. And I think Lilith was that at a time of music where women's voices weren't in
1: the mix. And even that in itself is surprising because it started so powerfully with this riot girl movement. And then all of a sudden we get to the late 90s and the Spice Girls are feminism. I mean, how did that happen? (laughs) And then even worse, you have Woodstock 99, where there were so many assaults at that show. The journalists started calling it rape stock because there were four sexual assaults and a lot more that were unreported and groping and... Uh, it, it became unsafe to attend a big rock show like that. So, really, the decade the decade ends quite badly uh, yeah. for women in rock. And
0: what's frightening is I'm worried that this is a cycle that
1: happens. Hopefully, not <laughs> right. But how did we get out of that? Uh, well, that's a that's a really good question. I mean, then you get into the new the the new millennium. Okay, so you have your your Carino, your Yeah Yeah yes, uh this the new sort of powerful front woman. Uh, and she is. And she decides at sort of the apex of her career, you know, I'm not really into this. I want to write children's books or make children's books. Like she wanted to do different things. So she opts out of rock stardom and, and a more sort of um, balanced approach to her career. Then you have the new generation of artists like Paramore. So that's Haley Williams and uh, Paramore. If you don't know who they are, your kids do, people. <laughs> um, they form in 2004, same year as Facebook. Um, They sort of ascend as like this first generation of um, of bands with a new paradigm. Record labels don't have a lot of power, but social media has a lot of power. And so uh, they sort of become, you know, the new young face of uh, of punk emo and all that. And Haley Williams, last year she was named to Forbes 30 Under 30 because she has this hair dye company, Good Dye Young. She's famous for her fire hair. Yes. She dyes it like, a, she looks like a Flame log on the top. <laughs> she's beautiful. Um, but uh, so she's now, she's an entrepreneur. So she's not only this, uh, this pioneering, you know, in this way, um, but she also has a, she has business skills. She's got mad skills. Well, talking about business skills, I want to talk about the artists that became producers. Oh wow there aren't too many um but Joan Jett produced uh, Bikini Kill they she produced uh, the Rebel Girl single which is sort of their iconic hit um and then i think it's really interesting to think about Cheryl Crow whose first record was a collaboration and her second record she kind of produced on her own i mean i think she had a some was that Saturday night, cool, night music club Uh Tuesday night music club Tuesday that night was, was music the, club. the big one that broke her open like as a star Um, And then the second one was the self-titled one. So she kind of retreats back a little after all that five Grammys and all the the hoopla. And she says, I'm going to work on this one on my own. And she starts singing about guns and uh, reproductive rights and all these political things. And she does this all on her own. Uh, Walmart bans her record, which in 1998, I think it was, that was a huge deal because Walmart was a a huge... A primary distributor. Right. Exactly. So she probably cost herself millions of dollars, but she was... But she didn't care. Yeah. She was doing her thing was she self-produced she that one she worked she did mostly by herself yeah and so that it's interesting that the
0: do-it-yourself culture that came that was such a part of punk um it sounds like and also a lot of riot girl coming out of oregon and slater kinney coming out of the west coast if there was something cooking out there about take it by the reins disrupt it do it yourself like i don't think it's an accident that this happened in parallel with silicon valley developing at what point is it, Slater Kenny? Where is it that you see um, that power to become famous, to put your work out there yourself in your own hands as an artist?
1: Boy, I'm gonna to point to St. Vincent, Annie Clark, who is a shape-shifting, brilliant artist in so many ways. Her her records, each one is different. She's such an extraordinary musician. She's visual. Uh, she has a signature guitar an Ernie Ball guitar that she designed herself. She That's downed... just that's like a new level of cool. It it really for me the guitar geek in me is like <laughs> it's like soaring, you know. Um I mean she designed the circuitry. She she hand mixed the blue color. She went to the Ernie Ball factory and mixed the paint. I mean, this is a girl who grew up in Texas as a shredder listening to Pantera. So she loves guitar, although she's, she's kind of moved away from guitar now. But still, um, you see her as this, she's just this artist who is making uh, huge statements, sweeping statements, and incredibly complex, challenging music.
0: It's also interesting that as you talk about these artists that were emerging out of the 90s, um, that they're also um, facile in multiple forms of media that they are creative people. They're not just musicians. Never mind just girl musicians. They're creative. And they write, they're visually literate, they're c- building their instruments, they're marketing themselves, they're right, making zines. It, it's like a different kind of creative output that I don't think we saw
1: before. That's true. I mean, it used to be if you were a rock star, you you were at the top of the mountain, right? You ascended this magical formula and the record label like plucked you and covered you in fairy dust and you were like exalted. And punk really changed everything. And I think that's where it starts with the zines and the uh, uh, the posters and people were, you know, tearing up magazines and making these things that look like ransom notes. And (laughs) but no, hey, we're playing at the, the you know, this is our gig. So, yeah, it begins with punk, but then as the Internet comes in, it becomes even uh, easier for artists to take their own future into their own hands.
0: And it also seemed like that combination of how you craft a visual image and how you communicate using images started to become much more sophisticated in their hands. Oh, definitely, yeah. And that with punk, even though um, for it's so interesting, the juxtapositions that are there, I mean, it's part of the music itself, but to see how carefully constructed... They were as performers, even though it like it seemed accidentally messy. It was actually artfully messy. I loved how you talked about people put on their makeup and then very specifically smeared it in a certain way. And it was part of th- who they became, their version of the power suit and the floating, you know, Stevie Nicks clothes.
1: That's that that's St. Vincent. And that's because she has a very sophisticated art eye. It's magical realism. I mean, you You have to be an art history major to even know about that. So you know, they if even they most of them went to college or went to some college, but they educated themselves and they immersed themselves in art and literature and all kinds of things that really work their way into the music.
0: It's interesting because what we're also seeing is that kind of as a um, a big arc of what college did to shape the way that artists form in this country. But we need to take a break for a second. Um, I just want to let everybody know, who am I talking to? I am talking with the amazing Meredith Oaks. She is the author, amongst many other things, of Rock and Roll Woman, the 50 Fiercest Female Rockers. And I am Laura Zarrow, your host here on Women at Work on SiriusXM 132. So Meredith, as we look at them and the way that they're emerging, you know, we had people, we had you know, women coming out of gospel who were literate, powerful, motivated, celebrated. We also had a lot of artists starting out at the beginning of the century who were not formally educated. And this went all the way into a lot of the British rock groups, you know, the big bands, not the big bands, but, you know, like... It's interesting, well, Mick Jagger did go to the Lungan School of Economics, but right, there are a lot of those people that didn't have the benefit of college educations and launched powerful careers very early. But we now have a generation for whom college was a more normal part of their existence, and it was the place they went to to emerge, to find their creative voice and to build these skills. And I feel like we see um, a political consciousness, a literacy, a sophistication in the music that's grown over the years coming out of these women. Do you see it too?
1: Absolutely, I mean, again, college is where you find your people after a horrible experience in high school, (laughs) especially if you're musical and you're a little bit of an oddball. Which now, though, I think it's different because now kids are more maybe encouraged to follow their muse and to if you want to have green hair, it's okay. Cindy Lauper (laughs) made it okay. Uh, so maybe now it's a little bit different. But yeah, a lot of these uh, these bands f- either formed in college or you have like the Bengals where Susanna Hoffs went to UC Berkeley and uh, prowled its record stores and saw uh, the bands that went through there. I went to University of Massachusetts, lots of concerts at that time. And, you know, there was just a constant flow of music through these university towns. So I think you're right. There is There is something about, you know, finding your your uh your tribe at college that informs a lot of these bands.
0: And I also wonder as a you know college educator I would posit that it's also a place where we all go to grow up and develop skills to learn to learn about the world, figure out what we think about it and what we want to do with it. And that we see this generation of artists that came out of it with something to say and do and a lot of activism that's attached to their lives. Would you talk a little about who
1: you see as really the most profound activist that you wrote about? Oh wow. that is a, another narrative thread that I was so thrilled to to find that so many of these women deeply care about issues and do something about it. Um, Annie Lennox of the Eurythmics, of just Eurythmics. There's you're not supposed to say the. Uh, <laughs> she is really has done one of the greatest things that I've ever seen. I mean, she has an NGO. And she is addressing poverty uh, all around the world and helping women get autonomy. She, um, in Lahore, Pakistan, for example, there were these women who had never been allowed to work. They didn't have their own money. Uh, her group, which is called the Circle, um, they bought cabs for these. Now these women are cab drivers in Pakistan, and they're making money for the first time. They have their own, their autonomy, their own cash, which
0: frees them gives them agency over their own lives, and also starts to put a lot of money into the
1: economy. Exactly. It's good for everybody. And Annie Lennox, she was touring, and as a rock star, she saw poverty that she could not live with and I think that's really beautiful that she did something about it. and she doesn't go you know screaming about it from the rafters I mean but you know but she's doing something about it I told you
0: that um, as I was reading the book I wanted to hear the music while I was reading it and so um, I had the book out on my lap I had my iPad opened with the artist up on YouTube I'm listening to stuff on my earbuds and by the way there's a Spotify playlist that people can get to right yep rock and roll woman Okay, check it out; it's awesome. And then it's like you've got the the background music, f- and also the subject of what she's talking about. And I wound up, um, you know, it's like a rabbit hole. And I wound up watching these videos of Annie Lennox doing these amazing performances at the award shows, and to see how she was acknowledged for an activism and a philanthropy that she almost keeps a secret.
1: Yeah, she does. She's very involved in HIV and research, and um, and also with her this organization. I mean. It's, a, it's incredible. But when you think about Eurythmic's first video, uh, where she, uh, she becomes the CEO, she is the woman mm-hmm. in the boardroom in the suit with, you know, pounding on the, the table and walking around the boardroom table are cows. And so she was making this huge comment about about the way the music industry was treating musicians like me because she was in a band before and, and had a very bad experience. So that whole beginning of Rhythmics is like her addressing what happened to them before in so the So it's industry. not just
0: surrealism. It's very pointed allusions to real life issues. Exactly. Not to mention she created a new... She gave us new dimensions for how to present ourselves as women. Uh, She was one of the most iconic, gender-bending artists out there
1: who did it with elegance and panache while
0: it still seemed totally
1: her. Right. I mean, she said, I'm equal to Dave Stewart. And if you're not going to accept me in a dress equal to Dave Stewart, I will look like Dave Stewart and be equal to (laughs) Dave Stewart
0: and as a result gave us a role model on all these different levels. I want to go back to the college thing for a minute because one of the things that you joke about is there's that school that, you know, Susan Tedeschi graduated from, but so many others dropped oh, out Berkeley. of Berkeley.
1: Everyone drops out of Berkeley College of Music, <laughs> not everyone, Berkeley, I know, but a lot of people do. And Berkeley's drop out. an
0: excellent it's phenomenal. performing arts college that yeah. really puts a lot of people into the industry. Yes.
1: Um so talk to me about Susan Tedeschi because she's a real master of her craft. It's really interesting because she discovered blues sort of late. and um, But there's something about Boston. I mean, so much blues came out of Boston. Bonnie Raitt moved from California to Cambridge to start her career. Uh, and Susan Tedeschi, uh, she's playing guitar and she's kind of in a wedding band and she starts to get attached to the blues and realizes this is my thing and becomes a master of the Telecaster, uh, which made me love her because I'm a Tele player as well. Uh, and so, yeah, she she's like making records and uh, her first one just won't burn. It took like two years for people to start to notice who she was. But then all of a sudden she was and the woman to she's brilliant. With.
0: She is amazing. And that voice, so soulful. And, but there's also going back to Berkeley and the master of her craft. This is a professionally trained musician. It's not an accident that her talent is unleashed right. with such style and a level of professionalism that we
1: also see amongst all of these women. She was so professional. She showed up to her first New York City gig in like a suit. <laughs> I mean, I was there. She was wearing a blazer. It's like, wow, you're like on a job interview.
0: But she took it. But she both had that sense of comfort in it and presenting herself professionally, and the expectation that that's how you
1: operate. Right. And she was serious about music. She wanted a career, and she she was very driven, and she made it happen. And then she goes and meets Derek Trucks, who's been playing with the Allman Brothers since he's 11 years old, and related, and one of the greatest guitar players in the world today. And the two of them are like this perfect family unit. And the first album they made together, after being together for like almost a dozen years— they win a Grammy. I know so it's beautiful. It's
0: like this genius pairing of talent, but it's also she's one of these great examples through the books of these unbelievably successful women, who it's like it's hitting all these notes. She's truly a masterful artist. She's experiencing professional success, and she's having a real life. Yeah, she's a she's disabled. not a mess. They have kids. I mean, they they have a wonderful life together. So throughout the book, I thought one of the other gifts you gave us is that um, because. Women in rock and roll were symbols of many things. They were symbols of defiance. They've been sex symbols. Um, I feel like people don't expect these same women to be philanthropists, to be mothers, to be homemakers, to be wives or partners. Talk to me about the patterns you saw about the healthy, normal
1: people having real lives in this book. (laughs) Uh, They are really the exception. (laughs) Rather than the rule, it's hard for some reason. I guess it's probably hard to be with anyone who has achieved a level of fame and notoriety. It becomes Um, a weird life. Right. And for even women who are with other women, there's something about the ego of the person who is with the person who is famous that makes it very, very hard Um, And you see them go through relationships and the breakdown of relationships and marriages. Um, But I guess Pat Benatar is a great example because she and Neil Giraldo have been together for almost 37 years. She's actually a great story. So tell me a little. We have like about three minutes left. Talk to me about Pat Benatar and the
0: arc of her career
1: she was going to Juilliard to study opera she didn't know anything about rock and roll didn't want to do it didn't care but she had this voice and then she hears Led Zeppelin and by the way let's note professionally trained musician professional, yeah absolutely Go ahead. and great 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 singer um, she she hears Led Zeppelin and the stones and she gets she's like I want to do this I have I got a voice I could do this Uh, She roughs it up a little. Uh, She meets Neil Giraldo, who she says she fell in love with the second he walked through the door. And they have this great rock and roll love story. Um, And then she... uh, All these... Crazy things happen to her. She's on MTV when it first, you know, debuts. Um, she also talks about these Me Too stories for years that no one really listened to. Like programmers saying, yeah, come sit on my lap and we'll see about playing that record, honey. Uh, being chased around a piano in a studio. Oh my I God. mean, her her record label airbrushing her shirt off in an ad. So like all of these things that she had to deal with that were just terrible. But in the meantime, uh, you know, they, they people told her, her promoters are telling her, you'll never sell out a, a stadium. And she does. And she's still playing music. She had huge hits through the 80s, She started singing blues and other kinds of music in the 90s, and she just did this incredible thing for, uh, for women soldiers, where she all the proceeds of her, uh, this song that she recorded will help uh, women who served overseas and have PTSD and other issues. So she's still playing music, and she's still doing good things for other people.
0: And by the way, we have a, I have a couple other questions for you, but when we go off the air, um, listen, it's Pat Benatarstein. Oh, and thank diverge, you for and it's that. our new outro music. <laughs> um, so, Meredith, um, this book is one of many things that you are doing. Um, talk to us
1: about um, where your, what your hope is for the book. Who did you write this for? Really, I wrote it for my nieces. I have two nieces who are 12 and 14. I have one who's a baby. Um, I want them to grow up in a world where they can be a guitarist if they want. They could be a recording engineer if they want. I want them to have a, a variety of, uh, every option available to them.
0: Well, I want you to know, when uh, my daughter and I, I was, we were sitting together and I was reading the book, and I read her the end of the passage on Melissa Etheridge, where you talk about how there she was, beaming and glowing, healthy, And taking agency over her own life and my daughter turned to me and said mommy that's what I want to be
1: that makes my heart just leap I love that I love that that's exactly why I wrote the book so Meredith thank you for being here today thank you for
0: writing this book for all of us especially for our daughters if people want to find out more about it where can they find it
1: uh, it, I mean, it's everywhere. It's on Amazon.com, BarnesNoble.com. Um, there's a Facebook page, Rock and Roll Woman. Uh, you know, on Facebook, and uh, I'm at MeredithOaks.com. That's sort of a portal to Instagram and all the other things I do. So that's how you find us. Absolutely, Meredith. I'm so glad you're here today. Thank you so much. This was so fun. (laughs) I love talking with you.
0: (laughs) Me too. Everybody, thank you for joining us. If you have a question about anything you heard on today's show, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can follow us on Twitter at bizradio132 and at Laura's Arrow. I'd, of course, like to thank my producer, Patty Hall. I hope everybody's good in her world, and happy birthday. And a special thanks to Danielle Bruno, who's sitting in for us as producer, our sound engineer, Jeffrey Sim. Simmons, and Michelle Abramov, who's here supporting us from the Women at Work team. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work here on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Have a great week, everybody, and go vote. Never go back, only go forward. Mothers, sisters, lovers, and daughters will shine.